Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Suzanne Venker Show via video. Finally, I know we talked about doing this this year. It's already March, but we're here. So I, as those of you who, who listen to the Suzanne Venker Show via video, via um, YouTube have asked it to be um, in video format, and it's a lot more complicated than you think. So I, it's not that I wasn't listening to you, but it just took a while to get set up. So here we are. This is the first one. So we're just going to pretend like you just started and you hit hit, and here we go live. From the magnificent Midwest, it's the Suzanne Venker Show, where men and women are equal in value, but wildly different by nature. Join us here every week when we challenge the culture's hugely flawed narratives about men, women, sex, and love. From coast to coast and from around the world, thank you for joining us. Um, okay, so I've talked a lot about why cancel culture is a great reason to become a Patreon supporter, but there's actually another one. The more subscribers I have, the fewer commercials I need. You've probably noticed that so far on the Suzanne Fecker show, we're largely commercial free, and I'd like to keep it that way for the time being. But in order to do that, I need listener support. So if you're an avid listener of the Suzanne Venker show and you like that it's commercial free, please consider becoming a monthly subscriber. As always, there are four very economical levels to choose from. And depending on which tier you, cho tier you choose, we offer giveaways and bonus episodes and even Q&As with me. So just go to SuzanneVenker.com slash podcast and you'll see the red button about a quarter of the way down the page. Again, that's SuzanneVenker.com slash podcast. And now on with the show. Have you ever been told that science is sexist or that being obese is healthy? How about there's, that there's no such thing as biological sex or that only white people can be racist? Are you confused by these ideas and do you wonder how they've managed to so quickly challenge the very logic of Western society? James Lindsay is a mathematician, author, and cultural critic known for his involvement in the grievance studies affair with two of his colleagues, one of whom he co-authored the book, Cynical Theories, How Activist Scholarship Made Everything About Race, Gender, and Identity, and Why This Harms Everybody. The book is a Wall Street Journal, USA Today, and Publishers Weekly bestseller. James calls the social justice movement his ideological enemy and is a major component of wokeness. He and I are going to talk today about the evolution of the dogma that informs woke ideas, such as the idea that science and reason are tools of oppression, that all human interactions are sites of oppressive power play, and that language is dangerous. And of course, we'll be covering cancel culture as well. <laughs> so great to see you. <laughs> Thanks for coming on. Yeah, <laughs> okay, we're going to start here. with something. We're going to start with the really simple question that you get asked, I'm sure, all the time, but it's so important we have to start there. Please tell everybody what is critical race theory? And before you answer that specifically, tell us what critical theory itself is minus the race part. Oh, man. Yeah? Um, that makes sense? I mean, yeah, yeah. I could okay. talk okay. for an hour about this. It's a, it's a hard answer. I will try to be really succinct if I can. So we'll start with critical theory. Critical theory is a way of thinking about the world that arose in the early 1920s, and it's proceeded since then. It developed substantially in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s in particular. Um, but the kind of definition, uh, kind of the shortest possible way to put it, is that critical theory arose with a bunch of, just to put it completely frankly, communists who were trying to figure out why communist revolutions weren't happening in Europe. 
they happened in, or in America for that matter, they happened in, in Russia with a peasant society, but Marx had predicted that the revolutions would take place in advanced industrial economies, like you'd see in London or Berlin or Chicago or New York City or LA, and those places were not going communist. Uh, there was the Russian Revolution, 90% peasant agrarian society. There was the Hungarian Revolution of 1919, I think, maybe 18, that fell apart after a few months. And these communists wanted to figure out why. And they invented a thing called the, they called it the Institute for Social Research, was founded in Frankfurt, Germany. It's better known as the Frankfurt School. And that's where critical theory was developed. It was meant to be a critical theory of society that would explain why it was that communism wasn't taking root in Western industrial economies. And it has kind of three key components define a critical theory. And if we want to just kind of back up a second to Marx, you know, Marx has that famous statement, you know, up to this point, I don't, I can't quote it exactly, but up to this point, the philosophers have studied the world in order to understand it, but the point is to change it. Well, critical theory is designed to do the changing it part. And whereas um, traditional theory is what they called it, was meant to do the understanding it part. So there's a separation between understanding the world and changing the world. And so critical theory has three components. One is that it has what is called a normative vision of a perfected society. In other words, it has a utopian goal. And it then the second thing that it does is it must explain how the current society does not live up to that vision or will not facilitate getting to that vision. And the third thing is that it must, in Marx's words, wed theory to praxis, which is to say that it must be applicable by social activists. So it must have a social activism component. So critical theory is social activist theory meant to drive toward a um, communist utopia. And it does so by picking at the imperfections of the world to make people, of the Western civilization, actually, not the world, um, of liberalism, of enlightenment rationalism, of the liberal order broadly, in order to make people realize that they are less happy and less satisfied than they could be if we lived in a utopia. So that's what critical theory is. That's where it came from. Like I said, it developed through the, I mean, developed first in Germany, Frankfurt, and then through the uh, post-war period, it obviously had to, these guys were all Jewish. They couldn't hang out in Germany during World War II. So they scampered off first to Geneva and then hopped over to the United States. Then it developed primarily at places like Brandeis and Columbia University, UCSD, um, Berkeley. It had its main kind of growth phases in, in these kind of big elite institutions uh, in the United States starting in the 1950s under the direction of Herbert Marcuse, who is a name who should be a household name, but is not any longer. He's very famous, very influential guy on the left. So that's critical theory. So the idea is, how do we make people dissatisfied with their society by pointing out how it's not perfect and do social activism meant to change the world around it? That's what the critical theory is. People who understand that the society is built out of systems of domination and power that make people unhappy and miserable are called critical theorists. They have what's known as a critical consciousness. The point of most critical theory activism is to teach a critical consciousness. Um, when that is infused into education directly, it's called critical pedagogy. That's what dominates our schools these days and has since the 1980s. Um, and critical race theory grew out of that tradition. Um, critical race theory is that applied to race in short, but we can get actually into the specifics of what it is. We can also draw draw a straight line. I just mentioned Herbert Marcuse. Herbert Marcuse had a student when he was at UCSD named Angela Davis. 
Angela Davis is very famous. Angela Davis is still an activist today. She's integral with the Black Lives Matter movement. Her main project is known as the Prison Abolitionism Movement. Um, that's the main thing she's interested in is getting rid of prisons. And Angela Davis was a very radical, like I said, critical theorist student of Marcusa, but she was also what is known as a black feminist. And black feminism is an ideology, not a person who is a feminist who also happens to be black. It is a way of thinking about feminist issues from within what's known as black liberationism, where black liberationism is usually associated with things like black power and black nationalism, but it is actually critical theory applied through um, the issue of race, primarily through uh, radical black activism. And she was one of these, and then she inspired the two creators of critical race theory who were both scholars at Harvard Law, uh, a man named Derek Bell, starting in the 1970s, and his student, Kimberly Crenshaw, who coined the term critical race theory and also the term and the idea of intersectionality, which is also a big thing. Um, critical race theory, I mean, I know I'm just going on and on. It just goes, well, but... No, well, I'm, I'm, I'm looking for a space to, to get in there. I, I'm going to ask you... Well, I have a question. Sure. Let me just ask you this question. Couldn't you then... Isn't there such a thing... Wouldn't there be such a thing as critical gender theory? There is, yeah. I mean, isn't this... Same con yeah, the same concept, because I'm much more interested in the gender aspect mm -hmm. of this conversation than I am the race, because sure. that's what this show is sort of all about. Mm -hmm. So I didn't see that written anywhere, and I'm wondering how that applies. There is a critical gender theory. Um, it's usually, there, there are actually two of them. Um, it is usually referred to as um, gender studies, or in the uh, kind of more specific and more radical application, queer theory. Um, queer theory grew out of gender studies uh, in general, and queer theory is sort of like taking critical gender theory, so you're being critical of the idea of gender, uh, you're therefore seeing gender as a socially constructed instrument of power, that's what a critical theory always does, and it extends it further all the way into everything to do with sex, sexuality, um, gender, even romantic orientation, which they've separated from sexual orientation, uh, Queer theory is very interested in looking yep. at all that. So you, yeah. you actually have this huge fight within critical gender theories, two branches between what are known as either the, the queer theorists and within them, the trans rights activists. And then on the other hand, the gender critical feminists who tend to and the difference. I mean, both of them are actually gender critical. They think that gender is a social construction used to, as an instrument of power, primarily to prop up things like patriarchy, misogyny uh, and even capitalism. But the difference is that queer theorists are also sex critical, whereas no feminist is sex critical. Uh, no, no person who's like. What do you mean by sex critical? So the same thing. They think that sex is a socially constructed category meant to uphold systems of power. So the difference between gender critical and feminists and queer theorists is that um, gender critical feminists believe that woman is a category and in a, in a category that is, in fact, a site of oppression, whereas queer theorists think that all such categories themselves are the problem and all of them are social constructions. Um, oh so gender critical feminists believe wow. in biology, uh, but they believe that gender is divorced from sex. It, it gets real hairy. Right. Okay. So there is a, there is a critical gender theory as well, but like I said, it's usually called gender studies, um, which is shorthand for critical studies. Well, of and gender. that's much, and that's a more familiar phrase to those of us who've been to school and know what's going on at colleges, because that's an option to, to, to major in, unfortunately. 
Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> so we know the phrase gender studies much more easily than than critical theory. Okay, so in, in a nutshell, it's. It, the argument is that capitalism and free societies are oppressive and you need to be liberated from them. Correct. Right? Yeah. That- and that they, they do that by creating all of these um, other categories so- like race and sex and gender and sexuality and so on. And they use that to to create other interlocked systems or intersecting, if you want, systems of power that are designed to basically continue the current white what do they say? Cis, hetero, white supremacist, patriarchy, or whatever. Yeah, all of the things. I mean, even Judith Butler, one of their biggest theorists, like the most famous queer theorist of them all, referred to it as that exasperated, et cetera. When you have to list all of the, (laughs) all of the things, you know, she's like that exasperated, et cetera. Even she. Right. That's funny. Um, Okay. So this, so I'm going to, I'm going to ask you a question about this. So from my vantage point, I feel like millennials are the main or number one generation to have fallen victim to this whole woke. I'm, I'm going to call everything that you're saying woke yes, just for my do, listeners, for me. We're laymen. We don't get into all this other stuff. So we like the, <laughs> I, I'm using the term woke here. Um, millennials are woke. That's right. There's no other way That's to right. say it. They're woke. And they are the number one group that has fallen victim to That's this. That's right. Even the Zoomers are less woke than the millennials. They are because I have two of them and I've really been studying this and looking at that age group compared to millennials. I've just been immersed in this for the past year. And I I have actual hope that my kids generation is going to um, bring us back to normalcy to some degree they I very well from may. this ridiculousness that we are in right yeah, now. Yeah. Are you seeing that? Yeah, actually I do. Um, they're pretty, pretty split. And the thing is, is that they've imbibed a lot of the ideas, but at the, on the other hand, it's like, I was talking to somebody, I, you know, fairly recently and they said, you know, I guess they're probably right above that age group. And they were saying, you know, everybody I know has been canceled like four times. It's getting kind of old. You know, they just hate the whole drama of everything all the time. And they see it as really repressive and see it as actually regressive. And um, that that so-called Zoomer or Generation Z, I don't even know what these people are actually called, but people under probably about 25 right now yeah, right. are mm-hmm. yep. increasingly less woke than, their, than the lost generation of millennials who um, were kind of the first generation to grow up with kind of super... Um, self-esteem school no no ch- uh, like 2013 was the first year where the the graduation rate was supposed to be 100% or 0% failure rates in high schools so everybody you know was it was a joke it was no child left behind but it really means no child gets ahead or something like that um that's when yeah, that really yeah. took place the graduating class of 2013 was the first class that literally couldn't fail and that's primetime millennial country, you know, that's the young, them and older, everybody who's in school throughout the time when those people graduated uh, are the crowd who have been absolutely cooked on this stuff. And for a variety of reasons, some of which are probably okay. And some of which are really bad, um, you know, loss of sense of, of meaning in the world and having a lot mm-hmm. of crap handed to them, lots of entitlement, um, watching mm-hmm. the economy just tank, nobody knowing what to do about that, seeing their futures kind of get tangled up. Um, lots of lots of messy stuff. But uh, yeah, my perception is that they are the woke generation, um, the millennials are. And they see victimhood 
everywhere they turn. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you, this is kind of interesting. I don't know if you caught the, um, you're probably way too disinterested in this, but the, uh, the Oprah interview with Megan and Harry last night. <laughs> I'm um, trying to like the reason I bring it up. I, I do <laughs> zero Royal family stuff if I can avoid it, which has nothing to do with the fact that I'm otherwise scholarly. It's just, I decided many, many years ago, like I'm just staying out of that whole hot mess, but I am vaguely familiar yep. with what happened. Okay. Well, the reason I'm mentioning is because in the wall street journal, there's a great article called Megan and Harry aristocratic victims of our times. Yeah, poor And it basically, that whole experience yesterday, I did watch the whole thing, um, sums up what we're talking about. I mean, in my opinion, that was th what we're talking about on display. Millennials literally believing they're victims despite their privilege and their position um, and, and, and the framing of it in terms of this idea that the there's something wrong with the system, yeah, it, not not the system of the royals even, but like the system of the world, the system of the country, yeah. you know that we're that we're, that we're racist and that we're oppressive and all of the rest, and using that as a platform for their political message. That's what I saw. Yeah, I mean, it's really kind of interesting, you know, that whole privilege thing. You know, Harry and Meghan bring it to a particular point. You know, that there might be a little bit of uh, projection going on there, like a little a yeah, little right. anger at the, at Just oneself. And projecting it Just out in the world. But I mean, this is true. This has always been the case, though. It's like we talked about, I mentioned the critical theorists going back to the 20s. They're always rich people. I mean, they're, it's, that's always who are this discontented class who wants to blame the system for them not being like they're elite. But it's weird with the royals because they're like, you don't get more elite than the royal family. <laughs> but right. but right. besides that, it's like they're elites, but they're not like usually the hyper elites. It's like they're high. I mean, they're what Marx called the bourgeoisie. I guess Rousseau called the bourgeoisie. But um, they they are high flyers who are envious of the fact that everything's not perfect and, and they're not even higher flyers. Like Bezos buys into this stuff, but you don't see him really like he buys into it because it's a useful business tool or because he feels like he can do a little bit of good in the world. But he doesn't care one way or the other. He's not like rolling around in his own victimhood, um, but he's hyper, hyper elite. Well, I've all, I've always tried to make this argument about um, I've written a great deal about feminism and its damage on our society. And that's, that's what I've tried to convey is that there's, there's fem the feminism that regular everyday people think they really don't understand that it, that it stems from elite an elite small group that you just described who are complaining and having, and they happen to, happen to have a microphone. So their complaints come out. It was very much like the interview yesterday as though it's every, every man's problem. But in fact, what they're complaining about everyday people don't even relate. That's to. right. Yeah. It's, they're not even interested in those lives. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a fringe concept, but it makes me think of this one, one idea that I was actually looking at the other day. That's called non-consensual co-platforming which is, you know, if you and I both had an article, say, in the New York Times, then we could, you if you were mad that I'm such a controversial figure and that, you know, you, you had to be placed in the same publication as I am, you could say that that was a non-consensual co-platforming. Or if you and I both got invited to the Aspen Ideas Festival, maybe in different years or maybe at the same time, well, they non-consensually co-platformed us, so now you're associated. This is the kind of thing that, like, no normal person could possibly give a rat's ass about nobody could possibly care it's the most um frankly bourgeois it's like they have nothing else it's, to yeah do. it's what it is and they think yeah 
My wife is just like, just these are people who, they're too privileged. that's right. My, my wife's all the time. Like these people don't have real struggles. That, that's what it all comes down to. Real what? Real struggles. struggles. Yeah. They right. have fake struggles. So you have to make one up. Yeah. You're bored. It's almost like a boredom. Yeah. Um, there are a lot of reasons, you know, there are some pretty decent, but fringe studies that came out of Poland where obviously you would expect that Polish people are like, let's look really closely at stuff that causes society to go off the rails. Uh, but there are some good psychoanalysis um, and, and well, not really psychoanalysis because that's Freud, but there are some nice psychological analyses of all of these things. And that there is this, this, this situation where what you have is people who frequently, for whatever set of reasons, you know, they're just not quite able, it's personality disorders is the current term for it. They're not quite able to mesh with the everyday world. And a lot of these kinds of Act, these sorts of activism have their roots in people who can't quite square the world with the way that it is. And then, like you said, they, mm -hmm. they have to be cushy enough where they can't, if things break, it doesn't really hurt them. Um, they have to be disconnected enough from, you know, basic things to, to be able to live in their heads that far. And so they, they have this whole, um, I mean, like schizoidia is, is one of the ones that's often cited, especially in feminism which we now call schizoid personality disorder. It's not schizophrenia, but it's it's a emotional stunting that happens when you're somehow emotionally wounded as a mm -hmm. child and you retreat inside of yourself and you start to write fictional, like your all of your interactions are fictional. They exist in your head. And then when reality doesn't play out the way that you wrote the story, you flip out because you're right. emotionally still eight years old or whatever. And it's a very difficult um, personality disorder to to wrangle with. Uh, but the incidents, you know, I'm not saying that everybody who takes up, say, feminism is going to be schizoid personality, but the incidence is, is, is actually really high, uh, comparatively well, speaking. Well, if you look at the history of their, if you look at the history of feminist upbringing, they're all the same in that right. way. They have a really, really dysfunctional upbringing, and they then projected it onto society rather than just look turning inward and saying, okay, what happened in this story? What can I do differently? So I don't end up like my parents or whatever the case may be. Right. They just wanted to restructure all of society and remain in perpetual victim mode their whole right. lives. Well, I mean, it's because it, it, it is a less emotionally mature way of dealing with the situation. It's like life yeah. is hard, buckle up and yep. deal with the difficulty and, you know, buckle up. Buttercup. Yeah. Right. That's, that's a harder thing to, to, to do than to sit back on your couch and literally think things should be different. And maybe in some cases, and in many cases, maybe they should be different, but the means to making them different is, you know, that's a hard road of a lot of work. It's not just to, to do selective complaining and tear other people down and, and, and that's the part, that's the part. It's like, that's what got me so much over the years. Like, I don't care if you want to do that with your own life. It's that you have this huge, enormous influence over everyday people, especially young women, particularly if we're talking oh, yeah. about feminism and you're affecting, you're negatively hurting them with your crap and they're believing because they're too young to understand the ins and outs that this isn't real. Oh, yeah. And if they've been hurt, then they grab onto that. You know, that's their, that's their blanket. That was one of the, it's just totally. Yeah. That was one of the big things Sorry. with, uh, with, with what they call third wave feminism. And I mean that technically not so-called intersectional feminism, which is part of the third wave movement, but the third wave movement really, people don't know where it sprung up out of, but it actually sprung up out of the Anita Hill, Clarence Thomas case. And that's where the third wave of feminism is actually born was during those proceedings and without having to relitigate the history of that, although I guess um, 
who was it, Amazon or whatever, just pulled that one down. So, uh, you know, that there was a documentary yeah, about yeah. Clarence Thomas and he's out, you know, they, they, they made that one unavailable. They canceled it because, you know, he's black, but he's conservative and who knows. Mm-hmm. But anyway, third wave feminism, I was watching this even when I was in university, you know, a couple decades ago. There's a deliberate almost grooming. It was what it looks like of young women to be paranoid. You know, rape culture, rape culture, rape culture. Absolutely. And then eventually yeah. in the the mid 2000s, we had that paper come out with horrific methodology where where they claimed that one in somewhere between one in four and one in five women is sexually assaulted in college or raped in college. And then it's like, you know, they were counting some things that were pretty loose definition. It was a pretty expansive, mm-hmm. I should say, definition mm-hmm. to the point where people Very. who were involved in the study itself complained after the fact saying, you've counted me as a sexual assault and that's not what I, you coded me as something I, I don't recognize. Um, and then that led to the so-called Dear Colleague letter that remade Title IX. And then you had like President Obama coming out and saying one in four college, uh, women in college these days are sexually assaulted. It's far too many. The real number is not a happy number. It's still like one in 40, one in 45, something like this. It's not a perfect number. It's, it would be great if that was one in 4,000 as opposed to something like that, but, um, or zero, obviously, but you can't quite remember the Rolling Stone debacle. Uh huh. Uh huh. It was all with fraud. Jackie. Yeah, yeah. The fraud. Forgot the name. And so, it, but this yeah. is what I was, I was watching this stuff though. And it was like, man, what they're doing is they're taking these 18 year old girls. They're away from home for the first time in their lives. They've probably seen something that, you know, college is like animal house, which, you know, nobody mm-hmm. today would knows what animal house is, but mm-hmm. that's like the rumor. When I went to college, that was like, college is going to be yeah. like that, you know? And it, I don't yep. think that many people my age had seen Animal House because it came out in the 70s and I went to college. I in- think scenes were made from more, from the college where my husband went. Oh, wow. University of Missouri. Yeah, in Columbia. Uh-huh. That's <laughs> fun. So. Um, so you got these girls who are scared, right? They've heard, their, their parents have probably told them they have to be careful, watch out, blah, blah, blah. First time away from home. College is a notorious, like, it's going to be like hookup culture as it is. It's just what's going to, you got these nervous girls and then you're like, telling them basically ever like look around they do these very emotional kind of things we did this with people getting failed out when i was in college but um they were like look to the person to your left the person to your right the person in yes. front of you the person behind you so now you're connecting yep. emotionally one out of the five of you will be raped while you're here and, and there's an answer feminism it turns out that i ran into yep. like watching how this was unfolding i was actually studying cult psychology at one point and how cults indoctrinate people in and the the method is always the same is that you manufacture a sense of vulnerability and then cult doctrine offers the resolution of that vulnerability and so i was like holy crap that's what they're doing with this this whole rape culture narrative is they're they're making young women feel very vulnerable and then they're getting them to join an activist cult that screams about it all the time, often nonsensically into the destruction of young men's lives or even sometimes young women's lives or professors' lives um, based off of fabrications and emotional manipulations because, mm-hmm. you know, misery in a sense does love company. And so when you're in a cult, people not being in the mm-hmm. cult are a constant source of misery for you because they're constantly causing you to have cognitive dissonance yep. and other people don't see the world the same way you do. And so dragging more and more young women into the cult, was, it was, I mean, I was just watching and I was like, Very oh my effective. God, it's basically grooming, um, grooming young women yeah. to be paranoid and cynical about the, the society they live in rather than, you know, 
earlier than that, you know, if a guy says something to you, hit him with your elbow or, you know, whatever it is, shout him down and. What? You know, Steven Crowder. I know who he is. Yeah, I mean, you know, who that, you know who that is. I mean, you know who yeah. that is. And you've seen what he does on college campuses. When I watch those, I'm struck with, and not just from those, but that's just what I thought of. They really do believe what they're saying. So mm-hmm. when you try to um, re-educate them, let's say, or show them the light, the emotion is so dramatic that it's clear as day to somebody like you and me that they've just been emotional. It's like you're saying, like, they're in a cult. But the thing is, they truly, genuinely believe it. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not like they're um, trying to... There's no ill intent. It's like when they're that young, they really genuinely believe it. And that's the scary part for me. Like right. even when I think about what I was talking about yesterday, what 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 Megan was propagating on this on this interview with Oprah, I don't think of her as evil. I think she genuinely believes in this whole worldview. It's just so warped. It's just right. so twisted. But they believe it. It's not like you can really ascribe evil intent necessarily. No, them. I don't think maybe in the to most... the purpose of people who groom them, but not to the receivers. Right. And even in the case where like, if we call them grooming, even there, uh, I would, I would put evil intent as far back as the people funding it and probably nowhere nearer. Right. The people, it's like a whole chain of people who have bought into it and believe it. And then with people like Megan, I should have said this earlier. I forgot about that. Um, one of the aspects to this with people who are these kind of very elite flyers like Meghan Markle um, is that when you have basically unlimited resources at your disposal, you're no longer in the market to compete based on money. Like some of these people are psychos and they're like, yeah, you have $41 billion and I have $47 billion. Like they care still. Nobody really cares. At that level, what you have to compete on is status. It's, it's what image can you put out? And that's where you start seeing people take on what some people call luxury beliefs like this or communism in general or socialism. These are all luxury beliefs. You know, they're they're utopian dreams that don't really work. And, oh, look how great it would be if we could all just imagine this better world, reimagine possibilities. And so this is kind of what you end up end up having. So like Megan probably does believe it because she's walked down a long road of realizing that she gathers status and is rewarded every single time that she signals these beliefs and she's punished every time she deviates from these beliefs. This is basic neuroscience. They, they, I, I know it's really like stupid to say this because, I mean, it, it's called the law of attraction. <laughs> There's a real one, though. Yeah, yeah. In neuroscience, as opposed to the the, the secret one, um, that's, that's um, something different. Uh, but it's called the law of attraction and repulsion. Uh, in neuroscience. And what it says is that it's simple. We're attracted to that, which gives us a positive reward. And we're, we're repelled mm-hmm. against that, which gives us a negative, negative feedback. It's, it's the most like it basic work, neuroscience, it, but it's working. Work. Right. And so what will happen is people will actually, it, I mean, it's, it, the, the cold term for it is conditioning. They will condition themselves to um, give responses that they get constantly get positive feedback for. And then the away from ones they get negative feedback for. And then when you add in something like the polarization we have now, you get this kind of flip flopped where if like a conservative comes after you, that's actually a weird form of positive uh, feedback. If you're woke, like, Oh, the conservatives hate me. I must be doing something right. You know? So you yeah, kind of can yeah, flip it over. Yeah. 
and becomes a badge of honor or whatever. And so this is kind of the underlying psychology of how these people walk themselves further and further into this road. And with, with kids like in the millennial generation and even to, you know, to the degree that the Zoomers are caught in this, older Zoomers in particular, the early 20-somethings right now, it's their entire social network. It's like they never had to read a page of any of this scholarship no, right. that I know about or whatever. All their friends are doing it. It's just that's mm -hmm. what I mean. I talked to this kid a couple of years ago. I was out in California and I talked to this kid. Um, he was like a junior in college or something. He was telling me, yeah, my high school, what we would do, like, here's what made you cool is you'd go home and you would get your yearbook like every day. And what you would do is you'd go through and you'd have everybody's pronouns like they're you're not allowed to call them preferred pronouns. Your everybody's preferred pronouns um, written like over their picture. And you would practice to know everybody's pronouns and you would have to like go through an update like, oh, you know, so and so changed their pronouns. So we have to update that. And you were cool if you could go through like you it was all like, you know, the cool kids were basically the ones who could nail everybody's pronouns every single time and never miss. And if you got one wrong, it was like, like struggle sessions. So he was like, that's what high school was like for me. He was like, well, I don't know what you guys did in the nineties, but you know, in the mid 2000, like 2012, 14, 15, whenever he was in, in high school, it was literally, they practiced each other's pronouns. And it's like, what in the world? Like, he was like, yeah, there were like 600 kids in my class. So it was really hard to keep up with everybody's pronouns. Like you have to memorize all these names and pronouns. There are no words for that. I don't even know what to say to that story. Well, that's okay, what it is. So that's what it is, to... is that you get rewarded for playing in the system and you get punished for not playing in the system. Yeah, and right, they've, they've right. all kind of okay, mutually so... indoctrinated themselves that way. So this, this leads into, I want to talk about the hoax. Mm -hmm. The main thing that I think you're known for these, these 20 fake papers you wrote for academics. And so I want you to tell that story. Um, what it was, what the papers consisted of, what the result was, and of course, why you did it, which we can kind of determine based on everything you're saying. Yeah, but yeah. Um, I mean, let's let's get into. Oh, wait a minute, really quickly before we do, I should point out too. I think this is important that you define yourself, or at least you used to, as um, a left-leaning liberal. Yeah, um, right. I am, and a, I'm definitely a liberal, right. but in the kind of like John Stuart Mill you know, not totally on board with everything. John Locke, I don't believe in the tabula rasa, but, you know, in the, the foundation of the of the United States, you know, Scottish liberalism, as it's called, classical liberalism, sometimes it's called. I'm definitely a liberal. Um, I'm still told that I'm left-leaning. I consider myself completely independent. I will say that I've never been a participant in any political party. I've never signed up for one. I, until the most recent election. But you voted for Trump and got trouble for that. Right? Yeah, yeah. I, I voted for Democrats for every election I've ever voted in my entire life until last year. And I voted Republican bottom to top. And I said that I was going to vote for Trump and I had to go on TV in multiple countries to explain myself. Um, so, you know, my left cred was enough to where I said I was going to vote for Trump and like I had to go on television and explain myself. So... <laughs> um, in, in more than one country, like three of them, actually. They thought, they thought you were their friend. They thought they were your friend or whatever. Yeah. And then you defected. Uh, and okay, certainly so at the time I, I was, I would have strongly identified with being on the left. I would have been strongly, um, anti-Trump. I mean, full out Trump derangement, to be honest with you. 
my one of my biggest concerns while we were doing the project was that right wing agents would use it to discredit the academy as if the academy wasn't discrediting itself or I mean universities, the academia, uh, as if they weren't the ones discrediting themselves. Now I'm like, burn that mother down. So <laughs> it's like the the thing has rabies. It ain't your dog anymore, you know. And is that because of this hoax that you're going to tell us partly, about? Is that what started? Partly. Um, okay. I mean, part of our thing was like, if nothing changes, if the university just, if as a system, as the university system or the academia just ignores this thing or tries to downplay it, like doesn't realize that we've pointed out an emergency in their halls, then the thing might actually be lost. I remember having a conversation around the time when we were doing it. And that's where I just said the rabies thing, where the question was, and, and we were talking with my friend Brett Weinstein, and it, the question is, does the university, where it's clear that the, the the academia is sick, does it have the flu? Does it have cancer? Does it have rabies? Because these are very different circumstances. If it has the flu, it's going to recover on its own. If it has cancer, we're going to have to intervene, but it can recover, probably. If it has rabies, it's, you know, when a dog has rabies, it ain't your dog anymore, and it's a danger to itself and basically everything. And so... So that was your well, that I was very your... reluctantly came to the conclusion that the the academia probably has rabies. Yeah. Uh, OK, let's stop right there. So I think people are going to be confused. So let's back up and tell everybody what. So the hoax was this project was was the diagnostic tool is what, what I was saying with that, with a conversation with Brett. OK, so in 2000, I mean, there's there's lots of ways that we could start this. But my colleague, Peter Boghossian and I in 2016, read a particularly stupid academic paper that was about feminism and glaciology. And we decided that gender studies was ripe for an academic hoax in the style of Alan Sokol, who did one in the 1990s to great fanfare um, and, and great celebration. And Peter at the time was friends with Alan Sokol. So that's kind of where he got the idea. And we thought, let's write his fake paper. So we wrote a paper called The Conceptual Penis as a Social Construct where we argued that penises don't exist, but they cause all of our problems, and in particular climate change. And uh, the real cause of climate change, we said, was, is the penis, and the penis is characterized by something called machismo braggadocio, and all of this just nonsense. And it turns out we got that accepted, but we got it accepted in a really, really, really bad journal. And so we were like, gender studies is stupid, but we probably didn't have good evidence to support that. So it was really controversial when it came out. That was May 19th, 2017. I happen to remember the date. Well, by June, we were like, okay, maybe we didn't really do as good of a job as we thought with this. Like, it's really funny, but maybe we we drew our conclusion prematurely and reached too far. So why don't we just do it right? And so over the summer, we cooked up a plan and we got our friend Helen Pleckrose involved. And we decided to do a much bigger effort where we were going to write. We were going to write for a year if we could and get as many papers written as we could in that amount of time and send them off to the best journals we could possibly send them to. And so from August 2017 until June 2018, so we made it for 10 months and we realized, uh-oh, the wheels are coming off this bus. We can't keep doing this um, because journalists were starting to dig around and ask questions. If you want to know how we knew the wheels were coming off the bus, it was like, it's only a matter of time until somebody figures this out now. There's too many journalists asking yeah, questions right, too right. often. Right, And so we, we right. cranked out 20 papers in those 10 months, so about one every two weeks. The first handful were actually just garbage hoax papers, like just total off-the-wall nonsense. We didn't read any of the sources. We just wrote silly stuff and 
didn't even, just to see if that would they could do they would 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 realize like do they know what they're talking about at all and it seems they do know what they're talking about um because none of the zero of those worked then we eventually got a uh, a review explaining why they wouldn't accept one of them that just nailed us to the wall it was like i don't think you even read these sources okay. like this doesn't even make sense your argument's crap it's like uh-oh Let's reevaluate and let's see what it takes to actually get in. And so we started studying the material for about a month and <laughs> a whole month of effort to learn it and then started writing papers based on what we learned over the course of December of 2017. And right out of the gate, they all started getting in. It took us a month to become PhD level in, in this stuff. Uh, and one after another, after another absolutely ridiculous paper started to get in. By the time we got caught, Seven of them had got in. Seven more were still under peer review. The first six that were totally bogus, we threw out and didn't try to do anything with. Well, the ones that were accepted, uh -huh. I'm assuming they were not as outlandish as the penis one. Oh no, they were. They were totally crazy. Oh, they were. They were totally nuts. I mean, I don't know how PG this this broadcast has to be, but it's not. I mean, say <laughs> okie whatever. dokie. Um, so I answered to no one. One of our papers that got accepted, in fact, the first paper that got accepted, was also given an award for excellence and scholarship in the field. The field is feminist geography. Um, tracked. That's a thing. It is a thing. Okay. Yeah, that's where the feminist glaciology paper was published too. That was a geography paper. Um, so it actually tracked dog sex. We we used the idea, we had a feminist researcher that we claimed that spent a thousand hours in the dog park watching dogs hump each other and interrogating the owners as to why the dogs are humping each other. We claimed that we inspected in that thousand hours, 10,000 dogs genitals, which works out to a pair of genitals every six minutes and interrogated the owners about their sexual orientation. We admitted to make sure our perspective, you know, our positionality was engaged. We, we had to explain in the paper that we were writing the paper as a human and not as a dog, so our perspective would be limited. And the goal of the paper was to explain why we should train men the way that we train dogs to diminish rape culture. Um, pretty friggin' insane. And like I said, that one, That's what got that got accepted and awarded for excellence. And yeah, so we called... So what happened after that? I mean, then you got found well, out. You said I mean, that. Dura, but, that was so the one that happened? got us found out too. Um, that one was a little too yeah. over the top, and you know, the journalists were because once they, once they're accepted, they publish them and they're out there. So journalists started swirling around that one like sharks. You know, we actually had a couple of other papers that were were accepted by that point. One was about uh, in a journal called Fat Studies, which is a critical study of fatness. Um, we, we wrote a paper called fat bodybuilding, where we were going to introduce a category into professional bodybuilding called fat bodybuilding, where you would basically just go up and show off your fat. And it's not a competition because competition is bad and judging would be in a, in, inappropriate. So it's really just an exhibition. But if you don't add this into bodybuilding, then bodybuilding is, is fat phobic. Um, which it obviously is because it cares about low fat bodies and things like this and it favors muscle over fat. I mean, so they're pretty insane. Um, we had another paper that was accepted that was literally, we took chapter 12 out of Hitler's Mein Kampf and we took out our movement and replaced it with intersectional feminism, massaged the language and just rewrote Hitler and a social work journal accepted that. Um, literally Hitler. Uh, it's just a rewrite of chapter 12 of, of Mein Kampf, which is, you know, Hitler's autobiography or whatever he called it. So when you were found out, then what what happened to you? Oh. And what did you do at that point? So 
sometime in midsummer, um, the journal is swirling around. It got too close. And then finally I get this weird email from some lady, Jillian Melchor, who was a journalist at the wall street journal. And I was like, man, I can lie to these kind of like little campus reporters, but the wall street journal has got Not some, to the yeah, well, I don't care. I mean, you know, it's like I can fib or whatever, but it's like, they're going to figure that like they know what they're doing. You know, now we have real yeah. journalists involved. They're going to figure this out. And more importantly, they'd already done their due diligence and sent all of the, like they'd already contacted the academic journal and asked them a bunch of questions. So I had this other email from the academic journal, like, please send a copy of like your driver's license to prove who you really are. Uh, you know, it was like, uh oh, <laughs> like we're not going to commit forgery for this. Like that's not, we're right, not going that right. far. And so it's like, okay. Right. So I, I emailed the lady from the Wall Street Journal. I emailed Jillian and I was like, you've stumbled into a bigger story than you think. I'm happy to talk to you on the phone tomorrow. And so I call her the next day and, it, you know, I don't sound like somebody who'd be named Helen Wilson. And so she's like, are you trans? And I was like, no. <laughs> and so we talked for like an hour and she's like, oh my God. And I was like, there's a lot to explain here. And so she was like, well, I'm going to do a story on this. And so that's when we realized it's like, okay, now we just have to start tidying up and it's on her timeline. You can't tell a journalist when a story is supposed to come out. You're, I mean, that's especially in the wall street journal because it's a financial publication. Yeah. Uh, so it was like, right. uh, so we kind of like finagled it by embargoing key information so like she couldn't write the story in properly until we provided the right information, which we just held for too long on purpose to buy a little more time to tidy up our affairs and get stuff together. And then so that was in it was this in 2019, 18. It was in July of 2018. Sorry, that, and 18. then the, she actually published a story at the beginning of October of 2018. So we ended up buying three or three and a half months or something like that. Um, so. Then it came out, you know, we had had seven papers accepted at that point and everybody went nuts. More or less, everything went nuts. We were on front the front page of the New York Times that week. We were, you know, prominent in the Wall Street Journal. Obviously, we made print like the front page or at least print editions of like 500 papers worldwide. The, the demand for interviews and everything else was just out of control, um, really blew up, got a ton of attention. Um, the academic journals themselves literally basically responded with nothing more than saying these, this was very mean. It was dishonest. We're mad that this even happened. Nothing else, nothing else. And the academia basically just circled the wagons and did not really do anything about it. They accused us of being things like white which is obviously evil and awful. Um, but turns out to be irrelevant to our point. Like Coca-Cola. Coca yeah, exactly. With its employees. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the, the, they, they said that, you know, silly things. It didn't make any sense. Like, well, you didn't have a control group, so nobody knows how bad the problem really is. It's like uh, they published Mein Kampf in a social work journal. I think, you know, the problem is severe. Um the type of study that we were doing, I mean, I'm a mathematician, so I don't have the language that is necessary for a scientific thing, but we would call it an existence proof. There exists a problem proof. Seven papers just got in. <laughs> it's like QED. You know, that's yeah. that's an existence right. proof. We proved, we, we tried to frame it out that we had done kind of two things at once. One is what um, quality assurance people would call a white hat operation, where like, 
you know, you run a government website or something and you hire hackers to try to hack your website to find out where the loopholes are. And then you ideally would close the loopholes. So that's a white hat operation is what that's called. So we were doing that. We were, it's kind of a quality assurance test. The other thing we said we were doing was it was an ethnography, uh, more academically. We were studying a culture, an academic culture, in which these papers are kind of the currency of the realm and understanding how that culture works, what's acceptable, how do they think, how do they talk, how do they relate to one another, what's not acceptable, what's taboo. So we were learning about this culture and reporting back about the culture kind of in a very ethnographic frame, as they say, uh, in anthropology. And nobody gave a crap about that. They were just that we were mean, we were awful or whatever. And then, of course, um, politically speaking, you know, it just polarized. Absolutely. I got invited on maybe 500 different right wing outlets to talk about this in the course of the next five months or something, six months. I got invited on two left wing outlets, just absolute like moratorium sure. from the left talking to us at all. We just became persona non grata. Um, while uh, right-wing people, of course, loved us and because we confirmed something that they believed was happening all along is that academia had become corrupted and become invested in you know publishing yeah. sophistry and then indoctrinating students based upon the publication of sophistry. Mm -hmm. Well, it's brilliant. It's awesome. I... I, I... I think it's great. I mean, I don't know that I'm curious how many people that are listening to this or have, you know, we're aware of this, um, that this happened at all. So I'm so thrilled to have you on. Of course, this links directly into cancel culture. Obviously we didn't talk too much about that, but it's kind of, the whole thing is cancel culture. That's basically surrounding right. this whole thing that we're talking about because they, they're, they're linked. Yeah. These become the um, justifications for canceling yeah. people. Right. So now the imagery and right. Dr. Seuss, is, imp is inappropriate. Good. So you have to cancel, uh, you have to pressure the Seuss organization till it cancels itself, right? So then, then you can say it was their own decision or whatever. So I have a question just sort of mm -hmm. close this up. You know, the answer, I think you've said this, this is what I've certainly said. I think I read that you said this, something to the effect of to speak the truth and not be willing to go along with this, right? Instead of this, speaking your truth that there's no there's no phrase that bugs me more than hearing this what is your truth speak your truth you've i mean do they honestly not realize what that sounds like that that's not real that that's not genuine or do they believe that your truth really is the truth it's very confusing it's just yeah. the truth in my book so so you're saying speak the truth don't be willing to go along what do you say to people and I really do feel for people. So I don't have, I'm not traditionally employed. I'm self-employed. I, mm -hmm. I assume you are. Um, what do you say to traditionally employed people who would say to you, I can think of a couple of people who are going to be listening to this now going, how can I do that mm -hmm. without losing my job? Well, what do I do? There are a variety of things, especially in the diversity training. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. So this is, this is a real training. point. This is a very difficult thing. And I don't want to ask people to throw their jobs away or whatever. Although, you know, the writing is on the wall. It's probably best to consider where we are and what's going on when you start making these calculations. That said, um, not go like not going along with it is something that, you know, you have to pick the limits to which that works for you. I've told college students, for example, like don't throw away your ability to get a college degree, go in, do the BS and document how you know it's BS. Just play along. You can do that in your diversity training. I've actually ended up having a lot of people that I've coached in this regard, and I've told them, go to your diversity training, 
participate, take notes, you know, actually do it, do it. Like you're trying to learn what it's about. And I know you don't like it. And then what you do is you use the fact that you took it in good faith. And then you show up and talk to your boss and say, look, I have some concerns about this thing. And then just level with them. Like, I don't want any racism in the, the organization or I don't want sexism. I don't want any of this, but I don't know about this. And, you know, just talk about some of the key points. If you don't feel like you can even bring that up where most actually employers have been fairly receptive to it that I've talked to people about, if you don't even feel like you can bring it up again, make notes for yourself, become an anonymous whistleblower. There are lots of things you can do that aren't throw your job on the line. Um, and if you've got to keep your head down, keep your head down. But I would say at the very least, you know, educate yourself about it and don't, if you're going to have to at least like walk around with the lie, don't imbibe it. Don't take it in. Don't repeat it. Um, just try to, you know, stay true to yourself. And then, you know, most importantly, probably is make sure you're starting to talk very honestly with your children about these issues because, um, and don't yeah. come off too hard on your kids either though. Right. Cause if you come off too hard, they're just going to rebel against whatever you, whatever you throw down, which is like the zoomers are rebelling against their, their, older generation, the millennials. Um, so you have to find out for you what it means. Like I can take some of these risks um, to a degree. Other people who are not traditionally employed can, but having open and honest, if you, if you, first of all, if you don't feel like you can have open and honest dialogue with your boss at all at work, that's its own problem. That's a problem. But if you feel like you can, you know, there are actually ways I've published a few resources on my website, new discourses to this effect. There's some organizations out there. One is called counterweight. One just recently launched is called fair. Um, what is it? Foundation against intolerance and racism or something like that. You can look up and look up these kinds of things. And there, there are between these sort of things I've just named new discourses, fair counterweight. There are resources available to help you figure out how to go have that conversation. Um, how do you frame it? How do you how do you say, you know, I care about these issues, but I'm worried about this approach? Because what I've found is that virtually every employer is open to that conversation, unless it's some huge institution like a university. In which case, I mean, you gotta look at you gotta look at heroes like yeah. Jody Shaw who have spoke up about this, and she's currently, you know, got pushed out of her job and I think is suing Smith college over it. Then that's, yeah. that's a harder, a harder ball game, but most employers have been open, like in the corporate world, especially are actually open to having these dialogues. Well, especially in the corporate world, and I wonder how many of them are actually welcoming someone to come up and express dissent because they're only doing it because they're told they have to do it. And they probably, most of them don't even want to be doing it themselves. Yeah. And if somebody doesn't, Stop it. I just don't. I, it's hard for me. It's really hard because I like I said, I don't have an employer. Yeah, so yeah, it's yeah. very easy for me to say that. And I'm um, I'm sympathetic to it. It just it just frustrates the hell out of me. I mean, I got out of I started as a teacher. I'm a teacher by trade in my 20s. And after X amount of years, I got myself right out on out of there because I was being forced to or being asked to do yeah, things that I were mean, against my principles. Th that's I, another I, I thing. It's it. like especially if you're in a you're in the right industry or whatever and you're at the right level. Like start setting your eyes on the prize. You know, as long as this country remains capitalist, you if you work in one of these companies that's going woke, you're watching your your competition become ineffective. And right now there are a variety, you know, so mm. maybe it's time to start thinking about making your own business that does something that is similar. And then yeah. um 
within that, uh, there are some structural things right now that are very difficult. We do have people pushing things like what sustainable sustainable development goals and what are they called SGUs or no ESG environmental something some I don't know they've got all of these kind of like fancy fancy metrics that they're using at like the stock ticker level to encourage and discourage investment so everything's kind of twisted right now but if the revolution doesn't succeed that won't last forever and uh seeing yourself as a potential competitor to whatever it is, you know, if, if you work for a, I don't know, a tractor company and like, maybe it's time for not woke tractors to come into existence. Um, yeah, there you go. She'll think your tractor's sexy if it's not woke. <laughs> That's how that works. <laughs> oh my gosh, James, this has been really awesome. Really appreciate you coming on and explaining all this Heavy duty stuff I in language. I hope terms. it gets through. It is heavy duty <laughs> stuff. Um, I know we we started off really like deep. So, but it's true. You, people should realize this was actually a project from within communism to figure out how to break the West. And if you don't understand that, how far it goes, I don't know. That's somewhat up to us. But if you don't understand that, you don't know what's actually happening around you. And so that's fairly important to 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 get a handle on. Amen. Amen. No question. Thank yeah. you. Really appreciate it, James. And um, good luck with everything else you're doing. And um, thanks yeah, for great conversation so far. And that ends this hour of the Suzanne Venker Show. Don't forget to continue the conversation on Facebook by typing in the Facebook search bar, The Suzanne Venker Show. Also, please recommend this podcast to one friend you think would enjoy it. And don't forget to leave us a review on whatever platform you're now using. Also, don't forget to become a YouTube subscriber by just clicking on the subscribe button below. And finally, if you have a question or comment for me, you can email me at Suzanne at the Suzanne Thanks for listening, everyone. Have a great week.